You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, we're continuing with our, seerah, our, our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratul Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In the previous session, last week's session, we talked about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, of course, the miraculous incident of the splitting of the chest of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what exactly occurred, why did it occur, what were, the re, what were some of the wisdoms and the benefit of that entire procedure being done to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then as a consequence of that, we talked about how Halima al-Sa'diyah, how she became very nervous at that time, um, you know, because such, such a traumatic incident had occurred with this child in her care. So her and her husband decided this was the appropriate time to return this child back to his family, back to his mother in Mecca. And so she comes to Mecca and she leaves Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who is about uh, four, four and a half years old. She leaves him with his mother Amina and returns him back to the care of his extended family. There's not a whole lot of detail that we have about what transpires over the next year and a half to two years. But we do know this much, that of course the Prophet ﷺ went back to being in the care of his uh, mother. And of course his grandfather was there, his uncles and his aunts and the rest of the extended family, the Quraysh, the Banu Hashim, they were all there. And the Prophet ﷺ grew up like any other four-year-old child would grow up at that time. You know, he had the same experiences that any four-year-old child would have at that time, where the life of that child pretty much revolves around, you know, um, uh, the, a child at that age is still pretty dependent upon his or her mother for most of their needs, from being fed to being washed to being dressed and clothed. And that's when a child begins to learn some level of independence. That's usually the age around the, when the child is capable of now going and using the restroom on his or herself and you know putting on their own clothes, changing their own clothes, even eating on their own and bathing themselves. All the basic human needs that a person has, that's when a child begins begins to grow that le- develop that level of independence where a child learns to start to take care of him or herself at that age and around the age of 6 not only does a child know how to take care of him or herself but a child no longer even tolerates the parents being intricately involved in that you know then it's kind of like no 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 I'll put on my clothes myself no 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 I want to eat it myself so that's usually when a child is transitioning from being completely dependent upon the mother for take for the daily you know and the daily needs and the caretaking of the child to becoming more and more independent and being able to take care of his or her own needs on their own basically. And so that was the experience of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's a four-year-old child, he's in the care of his mother and he's starting to learn some of these basic life skills. So he's learning some of these basic life skills at this point in time. Ibn Ishaq Rahimahullah in his seerah <clears throat> has a very beautiful passage where he talks about uh, the Prophet ﷺ going back to his mother, he says, فَكَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ مَعَ أُمِّهِ آمِنَةً بِنْتُ وَهَبْ That then the Prophet of Allah ﷺ was 
again with his mother, Amina bint Wahab, وَجَدُّهُ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ And of course as a father figure, the main person in his life was his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. فِي كَلَاءَةِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَحِفْظِهِ And of course he was under the protection of Allah and the safeguard and the safekeeping of Allah. يُنْبِتُهُ اللَّهُ نَبَاتًا حَسَنًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a very beautiful and excellent upbringing. لِمَا يُرِيدُ بِهِ مِنْ كَرَامَتِهِ Because this child was meant for such great things later on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided the most excellent upbringing for this child. فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ سِتَّ سِنِينَ Then when this child reached the age of six years old, تُوُفِّيَتْ أُمُّهُ آمِنَا بِنْتْ وَهَبْ His mother Amina passed away. And so the next significant incident from the life of the Prophet ﷺ is the passing of his mother at the age of six. So he comes back, he receives the, uh, the love, the affection, the kindness, the generosity of any mother. That any mother, any, any you know, healthy, sane mother that she would provide for her child, the Prophet ﷺ receives that, that, that love, that affection, that care from a mother. And one thing that should be stated here before we move on to talk about the, the death and the passing of Amina is that if you recall back to the quite a few sessions back, otherwise you can go back and listen to the previous recordings. There's a session that's specifically titled The Prophet's Parents. If you go back and listen to that session, if you weren't here or you don't recall, I gave a little bit of detail about Amina, the mother of the Prophet How she was, you know, she was of course an amazing woman, but there, there were some very, very remarkable things about this woman. <clears throat> she was very well known as being possibly the most intelligent and the most educated, the most, you know, um, you know highest, the, 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 some, one of the most amazing women in Mecca in terms of her character, in terms of intelligence, in terms of ability and skill, she was of education. She was a very, she was a woman of very high regard. She was very well respected. She was beautiful. She was intelligent. She was smart. She was extremely well spoken, well mannered. She was a, she was very gifted at poetry. She was very well versed in the history of her people. So this was a very intelligent woman. So you have to add that in. You have to factor that in. That the Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't provide the Prophet and you know, just an ordinary human being as a mother, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided a very intelligent, a very cultured, a very sophisticated woman to the Prophet as a mother, which directly contributed to the Prophet's upbringing. And something again, I, I have to keep holding myself back to not jump the gun, but when, when once we go forward and we proceed forward through the upbringing and the tarbiyah of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the key observations that we can make is that every person who, was, who had a major impact and a major influence on the Prophet ﷺ and in his life, particularly during his formative years, it was a person of very high morals and ethics and very, very excellent behavior. They were, all, they were all noted for their great akhlaq and their great conduct and their great behavior. That's one thing they were universally known for, from his mother Amina to his grandfather Abdul Muttalib to his uncle Abu Talib, which I've, I've again already spoken about in that session where, talk, uh, where I talk about the family, the extended family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
I addressed this already there, so th there's nothing wrong with mentioning it here, but Abdul Muttalib was a leader of his tribe. He was a leader of his people. And the trend back then, and as the trend continues till today, usually people who are in a position of leadership tend to be very, very wealthy and affluent. Even if they weren't wealthy before leadership, they, inherit, they, they become wealthy through leadership. Right or wrong, that's the way it works. And that's typically the system. Even if this isn't somebody corrupt who goes out there and directly steals the, pe the money of the people and the wealth of the, of the people that he rules over, being in a position of leadership still puts that person in a very good position to be able to earn money. Because of the influence, because of the connections, because of the, 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 you know, the network that that person develops. But what's very remarkable about Abdul Muttalib, and this is true for the previous leaders of Quraysh. The previous leaders of Quraysh, many of them were very, very wealthy and affluent. Abdul Muttalib though was known to be literally broke at times. He was very poor, he was broke at times. And this was primarily due to the very, very um, careful, cautious conduct of Abdul Muttalib. He never wanted to take advantage in any way, shape, or form of his influence, of his connections, and his network as a leader. Because he used to say, these connections of mine are only for leading the people and managing the affairs of the people. I will never take any type of personal financial gain out of these means. Abu Talib, who inherited leadership from his father, Abdul Muttalib, Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet was the same way. Abu Talib was a very poor man. One of the things that again, we'll talk about later in the seerah, but I'll mention it here quickly. Ali bin Abi Talib, Ali radiallahu anhu, we, you might have heard before that Ali radiallahu anhu was being raised in the house of the Prophet That's why he ended up accepting Islam so early on at such a young age. That's why he was maybe the second or third or fourth person to accept Islam. Because he used to, he used to live majority of the time in the house of the Prophet One of the reasons for that, aside from Abu Talib being very elderly and not maybe being able to keep up with such with a small child anymore, and the Prophet wanting to you know, do something nice for Abu Talib like he had raised him, so he wants to raise the youngest of his children that he's too old to maybe raise on his own now. Another reason that's mentioned in the books of history and the books of Sirah was Abu Talib, due to his very difficult financial circumstances, couldn't even afford to be raising a child anymore. So the Prophet was actually financially assisting Abu Talib in raising Ali radiallahu anhu. That tells you something about these people who raised the Prophet that they were people of very high morals and ethics. And that directly had an impact on the Prophet And so the mother of the Prophet similarly was an amazing, remarkable woman. And that definitely was divinely arranged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that the Prophet would have the best of mothers. Now, to talk a little bit about the passing of the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, when the Prophet ﷺ was about six years old, his mother Amina decided to make a trip to a city at that time by the name of Yathrib, about 300 kilometers from Mecca. Of course, we know that this city of Yathrib would later on become the blessed city of Medina, Al-Madinatul Munawwara. Alright, now there's a little bit of difference um, there's, there's a couple of different narrations or mentions in the books of history as to why Amina, the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, decided to go and visit Yathrib, the city that would later become Medina. Some of the historians mention, well, because the Prophet ﷺ's second or third uncles, if you will, 
um, used to live there outside of Yathrib, outside of Medina, in a small suburb of the city of Yathrib by the name of Quba, which later on would become very noteworthy because the first masjid in this, the history of the Summa would be built there at the place of Quba, Masjid Quba. And I spoke about this earlier before. And the connection, those family members of the Prophet ﷺ were basically the mother's side, basically the Prophet great-grandmother's family. Abdul Muttalib, Abdul Muttalib's mother's side of the family was from Yathrib. I had spoken about this when talking about the, fa the family, the extended family of the Prophet ﷺ, that Abdul Muttalib's father, Hashim, had, was traveling on a business trip and he had passed through, um, he had passed through Yathrib, through Medina. And he had stopped there to, you know, and he was in the outside of the city of Yathrib, outside of the city of Medina in a place called Quba. He stopped there to get some rest and he ended up staying there. While there, he saw a woman, you know, that, that he proposed to. He, he met a woman there and he, you know, fell in love with this woman. He proposes to this woman and he ends up becoming married to her. Well, he gets married to her, he stays there for some time, and then he goes on to his journey, and he ends up dying in Gaza, in Palestine. He dies in Gaza, and he doesn't return back. Well, what ends up happening with his wife who lives there in Medina, in Yathrib, outside of Yathrib in Quba, she's pregnant with a child. That child is Abdul Muttalib. Later on, when that child is born, and that child grows up, he's about seven years old, then his uncles come and retrieve him from there and bring him back to Mecca. So Abdul Muttalib's mom's side of the family was from Quba, Yathrib, Medina. So some of the historians say that the mother of the Prophet ﷺ wanted to go and visit Medina so the Prophet ﷺ could meet some of these extended family members. However, there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing that might have been a side benefit, but the majority of the scholars, majority of the historians, if you remember, we had talked about this, that the father of the Prophet ﷺ had died in Yathrib, had died in Medina. When his father, Abdul Muttalib, had sent Abdullah there to work out some type of a business deal to wholesale dates, to bring a lot of dates, to basically work out a wholesale agreement for dates to come from Yathrib to Mecca, Abdullah went there, he fell ill there, and he ended up dying and passing away and being buried there in Medina. So the main motivation of the mother of the Prophet Amina to go to travel 300 kilometers, to travel all the way there to Yathrib, to the city that would later become Medina, was to visit the grave of her husband, Abdullah. And so she's going on this trip. She has two other travel companions on this trip. One is of course her son, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa who was about six years old at the time. And the second travel companion, the third of the three, is Ummu Ayman. The woman by the name of Barakah, who was one of the milk mothers of the Prophet ﷺ, the foster mothers of the Prophet ﷺ. She had breastfed the Prophet ﷺ, Barakah, and she was known by the name of Ummu Ayman. <clears throat> she was the third person on this journey. They set out on this journey, and they travel up to the city of Yathrib. Later on, it would become Medina. And they end up staying in, um, 
they end up stay, spending some time in Quba with some of that extended family of the Prophet through from his grandfather's side of the family, from his father's side of the family. And they also stay some time in Yathrib, in Medina, for, to be able to go and visit the grave, the, bury, the, the place where Abdullah, the father of the Prophet was buried. It's said in the books of Sirah and the books of history that they stayed there for about a month, the duration of a month. After staying, and, and something very interesting that I found that's mentioned, by, mentioned in the tabaqat of Ibn Sa'd is that the Prophet of Allah actually had some memory about that month that he spent there in the city of Yathrib, which would later become Medina. Later on, much, much later on, during the Medinan period of prophethood, Meaning during his late, during his mid and late 50s, early 60s, even till that time, the Prophet ﷺ had some faint memories of that, of spending that month there during his childhood. It said that one time the Prophet ﷺ was passing by some of the houses of Banu Adi, which was a family from the tribe of Al Khazraj. You know, the Ansar of Medina, the Arabs of Medina, there were two primary tribes, Aus and Khazraj. So in the tribe of Khazraj, there were some families by the name of Banu Adi. And the Prophet ﷺ, while walking around in Medina one time, he passed by some of the manazil, some of the houses of Banu Adi. And while he was passing by there, he stopped and he remarked to the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, around him. He said, هذا نفس البيت الذي مكثت فيه أمي. He said, he looked, stopped at a house and he pointed at the house and he said, this is the same house where my mother and I stayed when we had visited Medina back in my childhood. He was able to remember the house. And then he looked and he saw like a pond, like a small little body of water, like a little pond. And he said that this is the same pond in which I learned how to swim. And then he pointed out to an open like field um, you know, just, just like an open park or an open field. And he said, this is the same park in the same field where I used to run around and play with the kids during that month that we had spent here in Medina back during my childhood. So the Prophet ﷺ still had some strong memories of that month that he was able to spend there in the company of his mother, visiting some family and some relatives and kind of getting to know a little bit about his own history. Nevertheless, you know, um, they stayed there for about a month, and then there's a very interesting story which is mentioned about when they exactly decided to leave Medina and head Yathrib, excuse me, at that time, and they decided to head back to Mecca. There's a very fascinating, a very interesting story which is mentioned in some of the books of history. Ibn Ishaq mentions this, Alama Bayhaqi mentions this, Ibn Hisham mentions this, uh, Al Waqidi mentions this. Many, many different scholars mention this incident, and it says that. خرجت به أمه إلى المدينة ومعه أم أيمن وله ست سنين فزارت أخواله قالت أم أيمن So it basically talks about how the mother of the Prophet ﷺ took the Prophet ﷺ with Um Ayman to the city of Medina, the city of Yathrib when the Prophet ﷺ was about six years old and while they were there he also had the opportunity to visit some of his relatives قالت أم أيمن فجاءني ذات يوم رجلان من يهود المدينة one day I was sitting with the child, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was six years old. I was sitting with the child and two men from the Jews of Medina came up to us. They approached us. فَقَالَ لِي أَخْرِجِي إِلَيْنَا أَحْمَدْ نَنْظُرْ إِلَيْهِ 
They asked me, where is that child Ahmad? Why did they call the Prophet ﷺ Ahmad? Remember I had mentioned this in the session about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, that the Prophet ﷺ was named Muhammad ﷺ, but his mother used to like calling him by the name Ahmad. That was one of the names that was given to him, and his mother was more fond of the name Ahmad. And so the Prophet Prophet's mother would often call him by the name Ahmad. So when he's visiting there in Medina, his mother is constantly calling him Ahmad. So the relatives and the family and the people in Medina who get to know the Prophet, this child, they primarily know him by the name of Ahmad. So the two Jewish men from the Jews of Medina, they come to Ummu Ayman and they say, where is that child Ahmed? Bring him out. We just, we just want to see him. We just like to look at him. So she says, I brought out the child. So they looked at the child and then they turned him around and they looked at his back. One of them said to the other, why did they look at the back? Remember we talked about this, the Prophet ﷺ had this, that, that seal, that mark of prophethood on his back. One of them says to the other, This is the Prophet of this Ummah, this nation. He is the Prophet of our times. And the really remarkable thing they say, is they say, and this place, the city of Medina, Yathrib, this is the place that he will migrate to. This is the place that he will come and he will set up you know, his, his headquarters in. This is the Darul Hijra. This is the place that he will migrate to. And they said that there will be great battles and there will be many prisoners that will be taken in, um, that, that will all have to do and that will revolve around this child. Basically referring to the Medinan period because the Medinan period was a time in which there were battles and there were prisoners and there were wars and there were martyrs and there were people killed. It was more of the time of conflict and war and battle. And so they're making reference to that. When the Prophet mother was informed of this entire conversation, khafat, she became very frightened, as any mother would. And she immediately packed up the bags and packed up the Prophet and told him, Ayman, get ready. And they immediately got out of town. Once they left the city of Medina, they didn't travel too far away from the city of Medina. They, they reached a small town by the name of Abwa. Now it's very possible that the mother of the Prophet already was not feeling well at this time when they left Medina, when they left Yathrib. But she was forced to basically depart Medina maybe before she was ready to, simply because of this incident, because of this entire conversation. She became very worried about the safety of her child. And again, it goes to show you what a mother will do for her, the safety of her child. And they reach a place by the name of Abuwa. It's a small town, it's a small village at that time. Um, it's about 23 miles from a more well-established, well-known place today by the name of Juhfa. It's about 23 miles from there, a small town by the name of Abwa. They reached there and her mother became, the Prophet's mother, his mother became very, very ill. She was running a very, very high fever and um, she was very, very ill, very sick. And they were forced to stop here. Ummu Ayman started to care for her and it didn't take very long, and the mother of the Prophet ﷺ ended up passing away. 
Wallahu ta'ala a'lam what exactly were the cause or what were what was the cause, what was the exact medical condition or reason. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. But one thing that we've talked about previously by talking about some of the you know forefathers of the Prophet, you know, the great grandfather of the Prophet Hashim dies while out on business in Gaza. The father of the Prophet dies in Yathrib in Medina while out on business. Travel at that time was very different than travel is today. And it was very, very common for people to die during these journeys and during this travel because of illness or sickness or infection or virus or whatever other because of the difficult circumstances the mother of the Prophet ﷺ passed away here at this place it said that you know Ummu Ayman even though she herself was a woman she basically buried the Prophet of Allah, the Prophet's mother uh, at this point in time um, embraced the child took the child in and um, she traveled, it's some narrations actually say that she returned back to Medina, back to Yathrib with the Prophet wasallam, and they were there for some time, for a few days, until the grandfather of the Prophet wasallam, Abdul Muttalib, re, you know, received a very tragic news about his daughter-in-law, um, the Prophet wasallam's mother, Amina, passing away, and then Abdul Muttalib himself came to uh, Medina to Yathrib and then brought the Prophet back home. Some narrations say that no, Ummu Ayman herself took it upon herself and she came back to Mecca with the Prophet on her own and uh, brought the Prophet back to the safety of Mecca and back to the safety of his grandfather and his family. You know, the passing of anyone's mother is a very, very sad thing, it's a tragedy, and it's something that's very, very sad, and it's very tragic, and it's very difficult. Let alone a six-year-old child who doesn't have a father. And so you can imagine how difficult it must have been. But what we don't know a lot about, we don't have any direct narrations telling us about maybe the, the Prophet ﷺ as a child, and how difficult it was for him, and how he must have cried, and you know, sought you know, some type of love and affection with Ummu Ayman and what exactly transpired with the Prophet at that time. But we do have narrations telling us about the memory that the Prophet had of his mother and how sad that memory was for the Prophet that he remembered faintly what his mother was like. And he remembered his mother. And he remembered losing his mother. And how many, many years later, Till, the, till his late 50s and his early 60s, till the time shortly before his passing and his death, how that was a very difficult memory for the Prophet ﷺ. There are narrations which talk about that one time the Prophet, the Sahaba ﷺ, they say that we were with the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, and we went out to a place by the name of Waddan, which was not too far from that place of Abu'a. The Prophet ﷺ said to us, "Makanakum hatta atiyakum." I want you to stay here until I come back, because whenever the Prophet ﷺ would travel, whenever he would kind of go somewhere, he would, you know, it was the habit at that time. He would ask somebody to join him or accompany him for safety. You know, you gotta have somebody with you, kind of have like your 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 travel buddy, um, and to make sure you're never on your own. Somebody always knows where you're at. You have some type of backup. You know, again, they're traveling out in the wilderness in the middle of the desert. But the Prophet obviously wanted some privacy. 
So he said, Makanakum hatta atiyakum. I don't want anyone to freak out. I don't want anyone to come looking for me. Stay here, sit here until I come back to you. They say, Fantalaqa, the Prophet left. Thumma ja'ana wa huwa saqeem. And then the Prophet came back to us and it seemed like he was sick. He looked ill, he looked sick, like his face. And one other narration says, wa huwa thaqeel. He looked heavy, like heavy hearted. He looked like he was very, very deeply saddened by something. And then the Prophet ﷺ explained to us and he said, Inni ataytu qabra ummi Muhammad. He said that I went to the grave of the mother of Muhammad. So he very affectionately refers to her as the mother of Muhammad, meaning my mother. And then the Prophet ﷺ mentioned something, this particular narration. Now, the narrations, this is mentioned by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad. The narrations I'm going to mention, some of these are used as evidence by those people who basically say that the parents of the, by those scholars who conclude that the parents of the Prophet ﷺ were not believers. But as I mentioned in that session on the parents of the Prophet ﷺ, my opinion in, the, in this matter is the same ruling that is given to us by the classical scholars and that is the that is basically the position that all of us need to have and that is Allah knows best it's not our business it's not our place we don't have to worry about it we won't be asked about it in our graves we won't be asked about it on the day of judgment it shouldn't matter to any of us scholars have discussed it for the sake of scholarship and we leave it at that and if somebody reaches that point in their own personal study, they reach, they reach that point in scholarship where they're ready to read these classical texts of these scholars and their scholarly discussions, then at that point in time, that person is more than welcome to go and read those texts and read those positions and those opinions. But nevertheless, our understanding should be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. We don't have to worry about it. We won't be asked about it. Nevertheless, the narration says, then the Prophet ﷺ says, I went to go visit the grave of my mother. I asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give me intercession on her behalf, and he did not provide that to me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refused that. And then the Prophet ﷺ says, qubur." I used to tell you not to visit the graves. And this is a very common uh, practice in legislation um, during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, that maybe sometimes when there was a bad habit, that the people of that time were, you know, had a very difficult time leaving and abandoning. They were very addicted to something. They, they had a very bad habit in regards to something. Then initially it would be made completely forbidden. This was the case, not just in terms of alcohol, alcohol was left haram. But the, the Arabs of that time, what they used to have was, they used to have special containers. What they would do is they would take different types of vegetables like squash or they would take fruits like melons and what they would do is they would hollow them out and they would take grease like animal fat and they would rub it on the inside of it and then they would leave it out in the desert sun in the heat for days and days and days until it would completely harden and that grease would become completely solidified and would literally form like a seal on the inside of that fruit or the inside of that vegetable. And then what they would do is they would put their alcohol inside of there and plug it and it would keep the alcohol cool and it would keep it fresh. Alright, not only that, but then they would also use it for milk, they would also use it for water, they would also use it for, um, you know, juices that they would make. So it wasn't primarily used for alcohol, it would be used for other things, but that would, that's what it mostly was used for. 
It was identified primarily with alcohol, but it could be used for milk or water or anything else like that. When alcohol was first made haram, the Prophet of Allah also made the use of any of those types of containers haram. Meaning, even if you want to put milk in it, put milk in something else. Can't put it in this. You want to put water, put water in something else. Can't put it in that. It was made haram. Why? So that they would become completely distanced. Completely cutting it off. To not leave any type of memory, to not leave any type of association with that element, with that thing, with that act, that sin. And then when the Prophet ﷺ saw that the Sahaba had become disciplined and they had become strong enough to where alcohol was no longer um, something that was enticing to them or they had become completely, they had worked it out of their system basically, then the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, by the way, you can go back to using those containers for milk or juice or water or whatever else you want to use it for, for permissible things. The same thing we find in terms of dogs. Alright, some scholars do argue the authenticity of the narration, but there is a narration in the Sunan of Abu Dawood where initially for some time the Prophet ﷺ had forbidden any type of association with dogs and even so much so that there's a narration which talks about how the Prophet ﷺ had told them to kill dogs even at, uh, for some people, for some tribes. But that was only to get it out of their system so that they would de develop some type of discipline, some type of... Um, structure in terms of the fiqh of interacting with these animals, knowing how to live with these animals with certain limits and boundaries. And then the Prophet of course told them, no, these are animals, these are creation of Allah, don't harm these animals. Right? Same issue applies in terms of graves. Initially, to distance them from any type of idol worshipping and grave worshipping, the Prophet of Allah had initially forbidden them from even visiting graves. You cannot visit graves. Haram, not allowed. But then the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw that these people had become solid in their tawheed, they had become secure in their iman, then at that point in time, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ says, كُنْتُ نُهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْ زِيَارَةِ الْقُبُورِ So when he visited the grave as mother, he comes back and he says, I used to forbid you from visiting the graves, um, from visiting graves, أَلَا فَزُورُوهَا Go ahead and visit them now. And then the Prophet ﷺ also, um, you know, the other things that I mentioned, وَنَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْ لُحُومِ الْأَبَاحِ بَعْدَ ثَلَاثَةَ أَيَّامِ فَكُلُوا I used to tell you not to eat the meat of an animal that you have sacrificed after three days, but now you can. وَمْسُكُوا مَا بَدَالَكُمْ And you can hold on to it if it, if it seems okay to you. وَنَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْ هَذِهِ الْأَشْرِبَةِ فِي هَذِهِ الْأَوْعِيَةِ I used to tell you not to drink these things in these types of containers anymore. Now you can drink in these containers those things that are appropriate for you. But there are other narrations about the Prophet ﷺ visiting the grave of his mother that shows you the sadness of the Prophet ﷺ at that memory. One narration in Al-Bayhaqi, in the Sunan of Imam Al-Bayhaqi, uh, excuse me, in his book Al-Dala'il, it actually mentions that the Prophet ﷺ, so he told some of the companions, majority of them, sit here and wait for me. But there were some Sahaba, there were some companions who were with the Prophet ﷺ. They go to a grave, the Prophet ﷺ sits down for some time, and then the Prophet ﷺ begins to cry. He begins, he begins to cry. Some of the narrations actually say about the Prophet ﷺ crying, ثُمَّ The Prophet ﷺ started to cry so much that he started to 
he, he, he became choked up while crying. He got choked up while crying. That he literally started to lose his breath while crying. He audibly began to cry. Like they could hear him crying. He was, he was getting choked up while crying. And he audibly, loudly cried. Like in the sense where he couldn't hold his breath anymore. That that's how saddened the Prophet ﷺ was. And it says that the Prophet ﷺ sat there and cried for so long. And so profusely cried. Tears and choking up, losing his breath. That the Sahaba anhum were sitting around him. They said, we began to cry. Just by looking at the Prophet ﷺ crying. How, we'd never seen him cry like this before. We had never seen him cry like this before. And it was so sad watching him sit there at that grave and cry, that all of us began to cry. So much so that Umar got up and placed an arm around the Prophet ﷺ, comforted him. And then asked the Prophet ﷺ, O Messenger of Allah, we've sat here and listened to you cry. We've watched you cry. What makes you cry, O Messenger of Allah? Because your crying is so sad. It's so painful, the way you're crying, that it's made us cry. What makes you cry, O Messenger of Allah? And the Prophet ﷺ said that, إِنَّ الْقَبْرَ الَّذِي رَأَيْتُمُونِي أُنَاجِي فِيهِ قَبْرُ آمِنَ بِنْتُ وَهَبِ That this grave that you, sit me, that you see me sitting here crying at, and making dua at, and asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this is the grave of my mother, Amina bint Wahab. And so we see that literally 50 years later, 50 years later, when the Prophet ﷺ visits the grave of his mother, 50 years later, the Prophet ﷺ is so moved by that memory, so moved by those emotions, that just visiting her grave, the Prophet ﷺ sits there and cries and cries and cries, profusely, to the point where he loses his breath, very seriously, he weeps, he cries. And this session today, while even preparing for it this week, I felt that aside from the obvious sadness that we feel, um, and we see the sadness of the Prophet ﷺ while visiting the grave of his mother, I feel that this session's really important because it shows us the human side of the Prophet ﷺ. This was a child who had lost his mother. And his condition was like any other child that would have lost his mother. And later on, once he receives prophethood, a decade, 15 years later after becoming a prophet, a messenger of God, after visiting Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, after ascending above the seven heavens, after receiving divine revelation, after being the vessel of miracle after miracle, mu'ajizah after mu'ajizah, after accomplishing and doing so much, you know, and this man is literally a superhero in our eyes. And he's nothing short of what we would imagine to be a superhero. But it doesn't change the fact that he's still a human being. And he still has emotions and he still has a heart. That 50 years later, He's a messenger of God. He's a prophet of Allah. When this man visits his mother's grave, 50 years later, he sits there and he cries his eyes out. And he's reminded of his childhood and that tragedy from his childhood when he lost his beloved mother. And he sits there as a 50 plus year old man and sits at the grave of his mother and he cries.
and it shows you the humanity, the human side of the Messenger of Allah And it's something very important that we have to realize, we have to understand, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, a lot of times we have trouble connecting with the Messenger of Allah And we have trouble relating to the Prophet of Allah because as amazing as he was, and when we talk about how amazing that he was, he can sometimes, unfortunately, because of our own short-sightedness, because of our own shortcomings, he can seem, you know, unrelatable to us. And he's, he's the most relatable. He's absolutely relatable, but he can seem unrelatable to us. Right? Because of we don't realize or we don't emphasize the human side of the Prophet ﷺ. So emphasizing the humanity, the human side of the Prophet ﷺ, this, this emotional side of the Prophet ﷺ, where he sits at the grave of his mother and he cries his eyes out, and he sits there and he weeps and he cries, it doesn't take anything away from the Prophet ﷺ, it only adds to the seerah and it adds to the Prophet ﷺ. Because it allows us to connect with him better. And then that's the second point that I wanted to make here, is that it, there's a very valuable lesson in this for us. That when we become believers, and when we become, you know, we work for the deen, and we carry the message of this deen, we're never supposed to lose our human side. We're never supposed to lose that humanity. We're never supposed to lose our emotions. Absolutely not. Because the Messenger of Allah never allowed himself to lose it. He never allowed himself to become above and beyond emotions. There's no room for emotions. You are the Messenger and the Prophet of God. You have to deliver the message. You don't, you don't have time to sit around and cry like a woman. You don't have time to sit down and sit around and cry like a little baby at the grave of your mother. What's wrong with you? You're the Messenger of God. Absolutely not. He goes and he sits at the grave of his mother and he cries. Cries, profusely he cries. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never asked him to give that up. And the Prophet never quit that. He remained human. He stayed in touch with, the, with these emotions. He was emotionally still connected to his family. And we have to also learn that lesson. Becoming spiritual, becoming muttaqi, becoming pious, becoming righteous, doesn't mean that you become heartless or you rise above these emotions. That when somebody dies or somebody passes away, that yes, there are some etiquettes about what some things we do and some things we don't do. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, if you're saddened by the death, oh, what's wrong with you? You don't have sabr? You don't have taqwa? You don't have tawakkul? Why are you sad? Why are you crying? Absolutely not. The Prophet sits at the grave of his mother and he cries. And he weeps. And he's saddened. And so, the Prophet, getting back to the actual timeline in which we're speaking, so the Prophet ﷺ is six years old. And he loses his mother. She dies out there. No one else is around. Just the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, and this woman who would become a mother figure to him, Ummu Ayman. The slave owned by the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, Baraka Ummu Ayman. And in that, you know, isolation, out in the middle of nowhere, the mother of the Prophet breathes her last. And the Prophet of Allah loses his only parent, his mother. His father had died before he was born, and now he loses his mother. You can imagine what that must have been like for that child. 
at that point in time, according to the different um, narrations from the books of Sirah history, either Ummu Ayman picks up this child and brings him home to Makkah to his grandfather, or the grandfather of the Prophet actually travels out and re retrieves the child and Ummu Ayman and brings him back home. In either case, the Prophet of Allah وسلم, is returned back home to Makkah and there he continues to live on with his tribe, with his family, Banu Hashim, his tribe Quraysh, in the care of his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. And from next week on, inshallah, we'll talk about the, the next two years of the life of the Prophet from the age of six to eight, the time that he spent in the care of his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the proper understanding of the life of the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to truly appreciate the experiences, the difficulty, the tragedy, and the, all the difficulty that the Prophet ﷺ endured throughout his life. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a proper appreciation for it and allow us to grow in our love for the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik, nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.